The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Good to see you back for the second part of my conversation with Nathaniel Nauro, looking closely at the FDI market in the Asian Pacific region. He's going to disclose to us what you as a potential investor should be looking out for. Well, I think it's really about um, understanding as much as you can, you know, <laughs> uh, the market and uh, the specific country in which you want to invest, um, having very good, reliable partners on the ground, and precisely the long-term approach, uh, which is very, very much uh, Asian also in nature. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco-Bekali. And the labor force. I mean, you mentioned now a couple of times working closely together with the government. I guess it's both ways. They're listening to what are investors looking for and they are adjusting, potentially adjusting, um, you know, facilitating. But what about the labor force? Because if I look at the ease of doing business, of course, how easy you can hire and fire, but is one thing. But what is really interesting here, if the government says yes, but you have to have a certain amount of local people working for your, let's say, tech company. Is that feasible? Are they educated? Yeah, of course, it's uh, largely feasible. And it's uh, even, um, again, business-wise, in your interest to do so. uh, Because you you need to have local people who truly understand the market. Uh, You know, culturally speaking, it takes a while to really understand what's going on around you. I, I remember... Uh, myself 10 years ago arriving in Asia with some notions from my studies and a few travels, but doesn't make you <laughs> knowledgeable about the, the culture and, and how to understand what is a yes, what is a no, what is a yes, no, etc. And so this is where you really need to have local workforce. In terms of uh, education and, and training, there is also a strong progress, uh, and, and that's really, uh, it is visible in a number of countries. Uh, so, of course, some countries are progressing faster than others. Uh, but at least the, the dynamic is toward a better education level, uh, which is uh, very positive. And then, depending on what you need to do, you can also keep in mind that in certain countries, you have the capacity to bring uh, foreign talents from the ASEAN region into a hub. So that's what we tend to do, for instance, in Kuala Lumpur or in Singapore. Um, because you will find a lot of people in Indonesia, in the Philippines, in Thailand, Vietnam, etc., uh, would be quite excited actually to move to Kiel or look at it. It's like if you are, you know, in Eastern Europe and you have a job offer in London uh, or Zurich, it can be super exciting, right? It's a different life. You know, you will own more than in your home country, etc. So uh, that's also a way we use to be very relevant. Um, and to have talented people from the local country, of course. And that's sometimes a requirement from the country who gives the incentive. It's, uh, of course, a give and take, uh, but also to attract talents from the region. And that's a really crucial point you're mentioning there, the talents from the region. And, you know, I've been to 
quite a few holiday destinations looking at big constructions. And, you know, you, you ask around because you're curious about the culture. So what's going on here? Who is investing? Who is building this, let's say, new hotel or shopping mall? And often it was the Chinese companies. Um, and I'm not going to be specific here simply because this is really just hearsay in my personal experience. So there's no statistics behind it. But you read it in the papers as well. If you have Chinese investors, what they sometimes, if not often, tend to do is send their Chinese people there. So locally speaking, uh, like in Africa, for example, also in the Caribbean, locally speaking, you see this big construction site and then you see a lot of Chinese as construction workers and you do not see the locals doing that. Um, is that an issue? Is that, is that something that, you know, the, the destination of that FDI really profits from and has their own local economies and people get richer through this FDI investment? So, you know, to be honest, as of today, if you, if you look at the salary in China, even for construction workers, uh, it's not necessarily the cheapest workforce. Uh, and that's why in Asia, you will rarely see projects, even if they are led by Chinese companies, you will not see that often, um, those entities hiring and bringing in Chinese workers uh, because they actually find more economic solutions uh, with uh, people from Bangladesh, for instance, or people from Nepal, uh, etc. So that, that may drive some, some concerns around you know, some security issues, et cetera, but we don't need to get into the details here. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, the idea of bringing over the full staff, I think, is something that, as you mentioned, you will more observe in, in Africa, maybe. Um, but in Southeast Asia, the approach usually, and it's not only for Chinese construction companies, but you see a lot of workers coming from, uh, from Bangladesh, coming from Nepal, uh, mm -hmm. and other countries uh, of Asia itself, with lower um, labor costs. And, and so a lot of this money would be sent back to the family, you know, like in Latin America, Las Remesas, for the, the Cuban workers or workers from Central America working in the U.S., sending back money to, to their family. So you have similar, um, similar modus operandi here. Let me quickly interrupt the conversation to say thank you that you are here with me on the channel. If you do enjoy what I'm putting out, the in-depth kind of conversations, then why don't you subscribe and also hit the bell button so I can keep you informed with our newest releases. Thanks for that in advance. And let's get back to the conversation. When it comes to incorporating your company in Asia as a European company, for example, I mean, we've been going through it with our partnership as well, looking at different hubs across the world where it's potentially beneficial. Singapore pops up all the time where you go like, okay, this is a market I'm going to be active in anyway. What are the other countries that are really starting to model what Singapore has to offer and at what speed? Yeah, so I think Kuala Lumpur has, has been, and Malaysia has been, and is still a very interesting alternative to Singapore. Uh, or rather than an alternative, I would say uh, something that can complement Singapore um, for, for the reason that in terms of cost efficiency, um, in, for certain things and for certain talents, you will find pretty much equivalent quality uh, of service or workforce or even sometimes better for twice or three times cheaper than in Singapore. So that is extremely interesting, of course. And you also have this um, heritage of the common law, which makes the business law very easily understandable uh, and quite safe for foreign investors in most sectors. Okay, so 
Uh, Malaysia is a very strong uh, option. Uh, Thailand is attracting, is attracting a lot of people as well, and uh, it's also about the culture and the lifestyle. Um, in terms of navigating the law, it's not as easy because most documents, if not all, will still be in Thai, and not many foreign investors can understand and, and read Thai. Uh, so we mentioned that Vietnam is modernizing a lot and at a very high speed. Um, so yeah, th those countries would probably be the, the top one. But you see also, in, uh, I was updating, um, I was having an update on the Philippines recently. Uh, they have created also a, a new kind of status for foreign entrepreneurs, which didn't exist a few years back. Uh, but still, in terms of timeline, it's not yet as quick as what you can get in Singapore or in Malaysia. So whilst there are a lot of opportunities in the developing countries, there's still a lot to do. However, the dynamics are definitely there. So looking at Asia, Europe and the US, where do you expect the most money is going to flow over the next five to 10 years, Nathaniel? So I think in, in Asia still, uh, and the main difference would be that a high percentage of this money will come from Asia itself. And, and this is a trend that I think you were mentioning earlier. Um, so this is really my, my strongest expectation for the, the coming years. And what does that leave uh, the European investors and the American investors with? Uh, you know, are we also going to continue to do FDI in Asia or looking at that intra-Asian trend of FDI, go like, okay, we need to bulk up our own economies. Is that uh, something that you would think is understandable? smart or will not feature? I think it really depends on the, the sector of uh, economy you are active in. Uh, you definitely, as a European or American investor, want to keep an eye on what's happening in Asia. Um, but you need, again, like to have extremely reliable information and reliable partners on the ground to know what, you know, what can be done in a realistic approach. Um, and as far as you know, keeping sovereignty on our economies, Etc. I think for Europe, we have a lot of things to fix <laughs> about our own societies. Yes. Probably. Um, and and pro I, I think the, you know, the coming decade is calling for a um, higher level of humility, probably, from, uh, from the European side. Yeah. Um, and to, to see how we can improve on many aspects, whether it's the efficiency or the way that you know, we give opportunity within our societies. And also, in the way that we are not becoming completely dependent upon production happening, all of it happening everywhere else. Uh, so I think this is another challenge for, for Europe. And to a certain extent, the U.S. will face similar challenge. Um, because at some point, the monetary domination will not be sufficient to sustain leadership. Uh, so this is also a strategic uh, issue, I guess. Yeah, and I'm happy that you mentioned that. It is really what your objective ultimately is long term. And I get the sense that Asia, the ASEAN, you know, contracts that have also, um, you know, just had quite a bit of development over the last few months, they are doing everything to become the number one in terms of economy, economic activity, millionaires being churned out on a daily basis uh, and billionaires as well. So the richness is, you know, is this clear focus, it seems, in this area, 
Whereas, as you just mentioned, it, Nathaniel, here in Europe, people argue about sovereignty, about, you know, international kind of little cockfights or ego fights, rather than looking at the big picture and say, okay, how do we position ourselves uh, as, uh, you know, recipients of incredible talent, of FDI, of, you know, um, being just easier in terms of tax facilitation as well in order to, to attract money. And then the U.S., well, you know, the verdict is still out there, and now Biden has taken over. Uh, what really the dynamic or the common goal of America in the global context is going to be? Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And I think um, you know it's uh, very important again, like to keep a close eye on Asia and, and to have already started to tie partnerships with uh, some Asian countries, uh, which is something we observe in, uh, in Asia. But, you know, just a few figures in terms of import and export balance uh, between ASEAN uh, and Europe. Uh, when you look at the, the figures, you realize that the exchanges between China and ASEAN or Japan and ASEAN are actually more important than all of the EU combined and ASEAN. Uh, so there is still a lot to do here <laughs> because it's not like we have nothing to exchange or to work on, but it's more about having more interpenetrated economies. And so, yeah, so you do have a big job on your hand because this is what you're trying to do. You get us European investors, let's say, to get over there and calm them down. And we touched on it um, a couple of times, and that is the cultural difference, as you were mentioning. Yes, a local, uh, local labor force potentially being the best idea. But what about the bosses? You know, because you said on one hand, the uh, you know you need to keep a close eye on whatever the operation in Asia is doing, and of course the temptation is whoever knows your company best here should also be the delegate over there. But that's not necessarily a good thing, is it? Well, it's really uh, it's really a matter of people. Um, so you know, from our experience, we've had mostly great experiences, um, and of course it takes takes a bit of time because you also make mistakes sometimes in choosing the appointing the director for specific operations. But uh, for us, it's a combination. Sometimes the directors of operations are local, sometimes they are foreigners, but in most cases, if they are foreigners, they have been there for uh, quite some time. You know, like we have people in the team who have been in Asia for 40 years, uh, lived all across, uh, all over Asia. So that gives a lot of uh, perspective on things, uh, and that helps, of course, to avoid the, the common mistakes. Yeah. And it makes me think of, you know, one of the stories my husband tells me when he was still working for GE, he went to Japan to sort out GE in Japan. He was there for four years. And the bottom line was it took him at least six months, if not longer, to understand the culture, to understand how to, you know, how Japanese workers or teammates want to be um, talked to delegated to, you know, um, all the etiquette and, you know, this, 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 this cultural sensitivity is so key and often underestimated by big brands, you know, the big uh, top 100 companies going like, okay, we are coming as if, you know, still in colonial times and we just take over and mm -hmm. it's not easy. No, it's absolutely true. You know, and from my experience, it was the same. The first six months, I usually say I, I did not understand much, you know, <laughs> and so... Never mind the language, just, you know, like, okay, what's the body language all about? <laughs> exactly. But after that, you know, you start understanding a bit and then more and then you progress. Um, but you, you can never think, you know, that you really understood all of it because it's extremely far from the still. You know, when I was 
um, in my younger years of living abroad, uh, I started with uh, Central America, South America, then I studied in the U.S. So, of course, very different um, from what I, where I grew up uh, in France and in Europe in general, uh, yet pretty quick to, you know, to understand uh, most uh, behaviors, the way the, the societies are shaped, uh, also the religious factor is important. Uh, and, and many other aspects of life, after a few months, you really start to understand whether you talk about Latin America or North America. It's, it's not so far, you know, right? But as far as Asia is concerned, it's, it's really another, it's another world, right? And even after 10 years, there are still things that um, surprise me. Which is great, you know, you, you need to be surprised in life also. <laughs> no, absolutely, to have fun. And it's great that you yeah. still continue to discover, meaning that you're learning, you're still curious about, okay. you know, a, a culture that you've been introduced to. And there is not just one culture. I mean, I'm, I'm exactly. saying that because we have the French culture, we have the Italian culture, the German culture, the Swiss culture, whatever. The same thing, of course, in the Asian Pacific region. Which brings me to another thing, and that is the image. You know, COVID-19, we haven't really touched on it, uh, but we are more than a year into the pandemic. Vaccines are out. But to what extent does, let's say, in China, the image of China really make investors go there or not? Let's say the image of previously the copycats of the world and, you know, uh, stealing information from something that is actually IP protected in your company uh, to being a hub of, you know, causing or where SARS uh, and also COVID-19 started. Is that on investors' minds at all? Or is that something that, you know, whatever, as long as you actually make a profit and you can expand and scale up your business in that region, that's all that counts? Yeah, I think, again, it's really dependent upon which sector of the economy you're in and what is the level of exposure to the public eye of your overseas, you know, of your investment overseas. Um, but I think the bigger picture here is whether China still needs uh, any form of foreign investment. <laughs> and the answer is not much. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the speed at which they have uh, moved forward over the past decades is just uh, unprecedented. And uh, in many aspects of the economy, I don't think this, they are really um, in demand of any form of investments, right? Oh, yeah. You know, it makes me laugh. Uh, a conversation I had the other day where um, it was about a technological bit. And somebody said to me, yeah, but it's Chinese. And I said to him, yeah, because it's Chinese, I like it. And I think there the image is starting and the quality also uh, of the product is really starting to change. At least for me, it has. And also the entire endorsement of whatever is in deep tech, um, technology, blockchain, etc. very much convinces me that this hub is so many strides ahead. Definitely when it comes to Europe, don't know about America too much. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I mean, and, you know, the, the dynamic of moving away from China, all the low um, value-added uh, production. Um, and I remember I was in another life, I was in the optical industry, traveling the world, visiting factories in China and everywhere. And uh, I saw this activity being moved to northern Vietnam, for instance. So anything that was considered uh, not enough high-tech, uh, started, you know, starting 2010, uh, China actually moved it away. So there was a real strong political willingness to move up the ladder in terms of innovation and, and high tech. Mm. Nathaniel, in order to wrap up our conversation, what would you say to potential 
you know, investors, people that are interested in going and really putting their money into the APAC region? What are the three key things you would advise them to look at, to consider and to do? Well, I think it's really about um, understanding as much as you can, you know, <laughs> uh, the market and uh, the specific country in which you want to invest. Um, having very good, reliable partners on the ground, uh, eyes and ears on the ground who can uh, help you in the long term. Um, and precisely the long-term approach, uh, which is very, very much uh, Asian also in, in nature, uh, to look at the long term. Uh, because maybe there will be some uh, fluctuations, which might be a little bit more uh, extreme than what you are used to in Europe or in the U.S. But in the long term, um, if, you, if you've made a sound decision, you cannot lose. Yeah, and if I think about, you know, the region in general, the ASEAN region really being the fourth biggest economic block in the world in, what, nine years' time, that is amazing considering how it was only 20 years ago. Um, Nathaniel? Thank you so, so much for having spent some time with us here on Mentory TV, giving the insight and the incredible, great job you actually do with your company uh, in terms of clarity, in terms of showing uh, investors opportunities in the APEC region and facilitating it as well, as well as co-investing. So thanks very much. Thank you so much, Patricia. It was a pleasure. And thank you, my dear Mentory TV community, to have joined us yet again for a conversation. This time with Nathaniel Narro, we dug deep into the FDI um, activities, especially in Asia Pacific, and technology seems to be top notch. Also, what Nathaniel had to say was, uh, you know, look at Malaysia, uh, look at Thailand, Singapore. Yes, is going to very much set the tone of where your opportunities lie in future. So, thanks again for joining, and I see you next time here on Mentor TV. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Dendy-Smith, and Meredith Tollison. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.